Hello, everyone. This is Cocoon Stories of Gestation. I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best. Last episode, we were talking about mothers, what they do for us as children, how our lives are influenced by them no matter what, how we spend our childhoods trying to differentiate ourselves from them, and how hard and essential it is to find our own way through life. Meg told us about her mom, about her battle with cancer, about how their lives diverged, but their love and support for each other was constant. Meg was an only child, and she moved out of state with her husband and young family to pursue their own path just a few months before her mom received a diagnosis of stage 4 ovarian cancer. While Meg sometimes wonders if it was okay for her to do that, her mom never did. One, Maybe one of the greatest lessons that she taught me with that, sorry, <laughs> was that she gave me permission to do that. And I was thinking about that a lot today, especially. And, you know, she would just say, well, if you moved back here, we wouldn't have such a beautiful place to come visit you and come see and like adventures to go, to go take together and, and enjoy. And she had never been up here before we moved up here. And she talked about how beautiful it was and just loved having the excuse to travel anywhere. But I think about that as a mother and I have, I have more kids than she did. And I can't imagine if I only had one of my, if I only had one child and they left that I, it would be really hard for me to be okay with that, I think. And, and yet I feel like she knew it was maybe what I needed and to be able to build more of my own life here. And that's probably the most that's probably the best example of how unselfish she was. And so something I think about as a mother is, am I going to be able to be that unselfish? And are there ways that now I can be trying to channel that kind of love and an understanding and optimism that she did? At the end of the first part of Meg's story, her mom had just died. She and her dad were cleaning out the house, preparing for her dad to move as he'd planned to once his wife was gone. As they cleaned and organized, they gathered all of the artificial flowers her mom had around the house and put them in the room her bed had been in. Unintentionally, they created a space to go when they needed a minute, a space to rest, a space to feel closer to her. It was a comfort they didn't know they needed for those days when the grief was still so new and so raw. But Meg couldn't hold that space forever. The next week, she flew back to Seattle from her parents' house in Utah and felt that in addition to the time passing, she couldn't help but keep track of the days since her mom had died. She felt that the physical distance of over 800 miles compounded the space between her and her mom. The Meg's own family needed her. It was the end of summer. School was starting. House renovations needed to be moved up on the priority list. And finally, Meg also took a step to close another chapter in her life. And I was in my early 30s and you know we had we had these four kids and we'd always talked about four kids that sounds perfect and oh and we have two boys and two girls like this is perfect but there was still part of me that thought we're still young enough that I don't feel like we should do something permanent so let's do something semi-permanent I'll get an IUD and we can see and it was it wasn't really thinking that we will have another child, but I just kind of felt like, you know, I just hate to 
just completely shut that door when we're at this age. I mean, so many things can happen. And I just kind of, it was all these like abstract hypotheticals. Like if something happened to me, I would hate for him to not be able to have more kids. I don't know. It was just kind of a funny thought process. And so he, my husband was like, okay, we can, we can do that. And then December, Christmas is coming. My dad was going to fly up to spend that first Christmas with us at our home. And I started just feeling really, really tired. And then as, you know, Christmas came and went and I'm like, you know, it's probably just the remodeling and it's been a crazy year and I might be a little bit depressed just because it's winter in Seattle and I'm still grieving and there could be a number of things causing this. And then I started to have another more familiar kind of nausea. It took Meg a couple of weeks to decide that she really should take a pregnancy test. And then, of course, she took another. With two positive tests, there was no way she could deny that this was happening. But it was still really hard for her to accept it. In all honesty, I was devastated because I had just finished weaning my son and I was finally feeling more like myself and feeling like, yeah, four is, four feels like a big family. It's a lot of kids, but I feel like I can do this and I'm going to be able to start doing things more like I want to do. And he's, you know, you kind of start like putting that baby stuff behind you when you're, when your youngest turns 15 16 months. He was actually 19 months. I was not happy, but I also didn't want it to go away. I just was like, okay, well, I'm going to just try to be positive about this and stop crying about it and um, try not to have it be such a traumatizing thing, even though I'm incredibly sad. It was a lot for Meg to deal with. She was sick and tired and grieving the loss of her mom, the family she thought was perfect and the expectations she had developed for what her life would look like moving forward. And suddenly it seemed like everything changed, and in a particularly difficult way. This is something I would have been open to. Um, I, I would like to think I would have been open to it. But we, when we found out the due date, it was almost exactly a year after my mom passed away. And so that felt like a strange, like, is there supposed to be meaning in that? And the old, my old self would have been like, yes, of course. But this, it was really hard for me to see, like, is there meaning in this? I don't really want there to be. It just feels mean, (laughs) universe. It just feels cruel. So not only were there these feelings to deal with, there was also the fact that she felt like she was letting her mom down by being sad and complaining about what was happening. Throughout her illness, Meg's mom had been an example of positivity and optimism, never complaining about the loss of her health or mobility. And on top of that, Meg felt guilty that she was so sad about the pregnancy when she knew so many people who wanted so badly to have a baby but couldn't. It was a lot. I was a little bit upset, I think because I wanted to just be able to keep being kind of selfish with my time and energy and be able to feel like I was being able to heal and recover so that I could be more whole again for, for my kids and, and husband. Um, and I think that's also coming out of it, but I, I, you know, we've been very open about, (laughs) about the process that 
you know, she was a surprise. And I'm always a little hesitant though. Um, and I feel a little, um, I'm a little self-conscious of that too, because I, I've just been, like I said, I haven't had very difficult pregnancies and I haven't had, I've never had a hard time getting pregnant. And there's always part of me that feels a little guilty for that, I think. And so I was kind of bearing that guilt a little bit too, that you know, here I was and I had, I'm getting another baby when I wasn't even sure I wanted another baby. And then I'm thinking of all these women I know and they, you know, just, there was part of me that was like, well, can't, can't I just trade with my wonderful sister-in-law who's, who wants more and just feeling like this is going to be so overwhelming for me. And and then feeling guilty that I was so cavalier about it and kind of negative and thinking, okay, I do need to be better and be more sensitive because, you know, babies are a blessing no matter what. And I was really fortunate that I, you know, um, if I ever offended anybody, they never made me feel bad about it. And they, people, even <laughs> I'm a little self-conscious too, having, having five kids in a place where four kids is a lot of kids. <laughs> And, um, even, even among my more religious and church going friends, um, we've kind of broken a record. <laughs> and so I've just been very lucky that I have met people instead of being, who weren't cynical at all about it, but were like, would just react like, Oh, what a, what a wonderful blessing. And this is so, this is so great. And you guys are so great. Clearly there were a lot of emotions to confront and process. But in the midst of all that noise, and all the noise of a house with four kids, Meg was able to find some stillness and some clarity. But I remember sitting still one Sunday afternoon, and, you know, quiet moments aren't very often when we have little kids in the house, but I, I found one of those. I found a quiet moment, and I was just sitting there, and I had the thought come to me. Um, well, I was thinking about how um, I am an only child, and... I have extended family and I have that I love and they're amazing and I have wonderful in-laws who have taken me in and are amazing. But there's still something about your own parents and like your own people that I think feels more like home. And so I was just kind of thinking about that more and more and so this one Sunday afternoon when I found that quiet moment, I I had the thought come to me that these will be your people. And I was thinking about my kids and had that realization that, you know, my, my dad won't, might not be around forever. Well, he won't be around forever, but I will have, I will have people. I will have my kids. And that was, that was huge. And I, I, uh, I thought about that for the next several months because that did not feel like it could have come from how negative I was being. <laughs> I did not feel like that was a thought that could have originated with me. It didn't necessarily make things any easier, but it was something. And from there, Meg found some footing. And once they found out the baby was a girl, there was a solid question that needed an answer. What would they name the baby? At first, it seemed like it might be a good opportunity to honor and remember her mom. And so then when I did find out I was pregnant, 
and with this with another baby and then we found out it was a girl I really thought maybe I want to name her after my mom and I realized for me her name was Kirsten and for me that would be like this cool tribute and amazing and then I started thinking but I never called her that and so it doesn't have the same ties for me because I just always called her mom and I didn't so I, I wanted to make sure that it would be okay for those around me who actually called her Kirsten. If you know what, what if there is another Kirsten? And I remember talking to my dad about it, and he said, "And wonder, you know, what would, what do you think Mom would think? And what do you think? Would that be weird for you? Would that be too hard? Is that kind of a mean thing for me to do?" And he he was really good about it, and he said, "You know, I don't think it would be. I would I would be okay with it. My only thing is I." I think from her perspective, all her growing up and her whole life, it was a more unique name. And she always got called by the wrong name. And she always had to spell it for people. And he's like, I think she would kind of feel like, why would you do that to this kid? (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, okay, we'll definitely, definitely keep that in mind. And I remember kind of testing it out with other people with, uh, with a, a family friend at a at a dinner and and then when she she was like oh that's so pretty that's so pretty and then we kind of ha- kept having our conversation and then when we went to part ways she said well good luck with Kristen and I thought well that kind of answers that probably that summer Meg and her family were in Utah for a family reunion and naming the baby is weighing heavily on Meg's mind she was flipping through the baby name wizard book still thinking about Kirsten going back through other options. And I kind of had to do it on my own because my husband doesn't like talking about those things until the due date gets closer. He just, he just would rather wait. He's like, because it just makes, it makes me too anxious. I just, then I want her there now and that's not good. So he's like, so just give me time. So I would just kind of make lists on my own. And he would like, he would humor me and have like one or two minute conversations here or there about names before things started to get ridiculous. And he'd suggest things like kitchen sink. And you're like, hmm, that's not going to work. One of the names on Meg's list was actually another family name. It was actually a name that had come up when Meg's mom was declining and they were trying to make sure they respected her wishes for her death. So one of the conversations that we had with my mom when we decided to, when we knew it was time to start doing hospice care is we didn't want to be morbid, but we also wanted to make sure we honored her wishes at her funeral, whenever that would be, you know, and figure out like, where, where do you want to be buried? And those questions, like even just repeating them now sound so big and morbid and heavy, but it ends up being like, really, it's really nice to be able to talk about those things and find out what what final wishes are and I think you can learn more about a person from from those conversations and so that same week that my mom started hospice care we also were able to figure out that there was a family plot that she and my dad could both be buried in in the Salt Lake Cemetery by um it was in a different spot so I have I have other family buried there and like my great grandma, who lived to be 104, is buried up on the hill, and it's just—it's this gorgeous cemetery that has views over the valley, and 
I have a cousin buried there, and there's there's quite a few family members there, but there wasn't room in that spot. But the family has another plot down the hill, and it turns out my I didn't really I didn't know this until we were we were talking about this funeral planning that my great grandma's firstborn only lived for about a day, and so this was the plot where she was buried, and. When my mom found out that there was a plot near this aunt that she never had the chance to meet since she was just a baby, when she passed away, um, my mom just teared up because she felt like this baby was buried so far away from her own mother and dad. And, and so she felt really strongly like that's where she was supposed to be. And um, that baby's name was Helen. And so going to the cemetery, you know, um, I talk about not being a person, or I talked about like I'm not, I have in the past, well, I, I, I am always looking for connections and I'm always looking kind of for signs in a way. And I've kind of outgrown a little bit of that, the unhealthy part of that, I think, as I've gotten older. But, you know, we get to the cemetery and I just, it was emotional because it was the first time we went back and... So just being there, and we were having a hard time finding it. It didn't have a marker yet, and we had to like look for a certain tree. And I'm just thinking, like, I think this baby's name is supposed to be Helen. I wonder what my husband will think. And we we went, and we were able to find baby Helen's grave and see where my mom's plot was and see the view of the trees. And it was just, it was a pretty beautiful day. And when we got back into the car, um... My husband turned to me and he said, I think this baby's name is supposed to be Helen. Helen was not only the name of an aunt who had died as a baby and whom Meg's mom wanted to be buried by. It was also Meg's great-grandmother's name, the grandma whose house everyone gathered at for Sunday dinners while Meg's mom was growing up. Meg inherited her button box with her name on it, but still hadn't thought much about using it as her own child's name until then. Of course, the fact that both Meg and Brad felt independently that this was what they should name their baby was really important, but Meg still wanted to know more about it. It's, we just, we didn't know the origins of it. You know, it's an old name. I feel like everyone has a Grandma Helen. It's a Greek name, and it means shining light, the bright one. And that has been Helen her whole life so far. She has just, as, as bad of an attitude as I had, I knew that I would, I would get on board and, um, that I would love her, but I, I don't know if I was prepared for how much goodness and light she would bring. I think every child that we bring into our homes, they, you know, they bring out us like they can really, I should say can, because I know it's not always the case, but they can bring out such a sweetness in everybody and in our other children. And that's, as an only child especially, I think that's been the most wonderful and fascinating thing for me to see from a more inside perspective is what babies bring out in in their siblings. And, you know, even my even my son who kind of would jokingly say, I, you know, oh, I really wanted her to be a boy and I wanted another brother. He just adores her and it's the sweetest to see. 
And so it's a bit of a mouthful, but we ended up naming her Helen Kirsten. And she was born a year and four days after my mom passed away. It's been wonderful to have all of those doubts erased about whether or not she belongs in our family because she just does. And one of the, probably the most recent sweet experiences was getting, um, like I said, my husband is always really good about looking ahead and making things happen. He's, he's incredible that way. And so we, um, when I found out I was pregnant, we had to put off um, a trip we'd been planning for when Soren was old enough to go to Scandinavia. And I was especially excited to go. I wanted to spend at least a day or two in Denmark, where my ancestors are from, at least in like the same country. We didn't go to their village or anything. And he was really excited to go to Norway. And he was like, and we'll just take the baby with us. So they did take baby Helen with them to Norway and Denmark. And while having her with them made for a great icebreaker while traveling, it also put Meg a little more at ease about leaving her other children, because at least she had someone to mother. And of course, her own mom was never far from her thoughts either. Yeah, so we'd be walking down these cobblestone streets with these gorgeous white homes, and they all had lace curtains in the windows and flowers, and sometimes fake flowers, because it's super far north, and they just they want to have flowers all year round. And it was so familiar to me and so much like home because it was what my home looked like growing up. And so to be able to see that was really, really wonderful. And I just, I felt incredibly close to my mom when we were there. And I, we were, we ended up making our trip at the end of August. So I found myself spending the anniversary of the day she passed away in a chapel in Copenhagen, listening to sermons in Danish, and just holding my nearly one-year-old daughter on my lap, and just thinking, like, what, what an incredible, crazy, unexpected journey life can be. In some ways, it seemed that having a baby even though she was unexpected and her timing was a little too close for comfort, was an important, if surprising, part of helping Meg cope with her grief. Having a baby that just, they need so much, but it's its kind of simpler needs, I guess. And just having, having someone that... Um, would, would cry in the night, but then she would stop as soon as I was holding her. She just wanted to be close to us and she would have slept. She just wanted to sleep on me all the time. And so I think that maybe without, I haven't really thought about, about it, but maybe having, having that has helped me to kind of just at least pass time and move forward and having having her need me so specifically has been it's been hard at times but it has also 
I think it's a little harder to feel hopeless or desperate or like just falling into your own sad abyss when there is someone so sweet and innocent who's totally relying on you. Yeah, it it really has it really it's taken me a while to come around to thinking that it worked out for the best, but I do feel like it has worked out for the best. And I might I I'm definitely more scattered and not as organized as I as I would have otherwise been, but I think I will catch up and <laughs> get those things figured out. And uh if the trade off is having a sweet baby girl that my Soren calls Helly and just adores, then it's worth it. <laughs> we talked in our last episode about how our relationships with our moms are complicated and tangled, about how there is often a back and forth, about how even when our moms are gone, there are shadows along our path. Meg's path diverged from her moms pretty dramatically when she was in college. While her mom was single for many years after graduating and went on to serve a mission for her church in France and Belgium and got a master's degree before getting married and having a baby. Meg was eight months pregnant with her first child when she was walking across the stage at her graduation. Meg said that she felt that she was kind of thrust into motherhood when she had been prepared to follow her mom's path. At times, she had mourned the loss of that fuller life she envisioned her mom having in her 20s. And she does have some regrets. But she also recognizes that life is always changing and expanding. She thinks a lot about what her kids will see in her, what kind of example of motherhood and womanhood and personhood she is setting. She hopes they see how much she adores them and will do anything for them, but also that there is more to her life than motherhood. She's both a mother and a person with her own projects and goals. She wants them to see her try new things and make things happen. She says, it's kind of a funny place to be midlife. I think about how different my life will be in five years. My oldest will be graduating high school. My youngest will be finishing kindergarten. It's forever away and a blink of an eye at the same time. I feel very lucky right now. And luck feels like the right word because I'm starting to understand just how many things are out of my control. And at the same time, I see how much I can do and control. And I'm so actively trying to edit my life, focus on what I truly want to do and do it. Mostly right now, this means enjoying those last precious years with my own little ones. It goes by really fast. Thanks, Meg, for sharing your story and your family with us. Thanks to Ben Howell and Ellen Barnhart for the music, to producer emeritus Ryan Barnhart, who got the stone rolling, and of course to Micah Heiselt, whose Google Arts and Culture Selfie match was Michelangelo's David. Thanks to all of you for listening, and please feel free to talk back on Facebook, Instagram, Apple Podcasts, or our website, cocoonstories.com.